1: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. In our investigation of the caregiving crisis, we've focused a lot on conservatives, social conservatives, economic conservatives, and the political alliances that have blocked investments in child care again and again. It's easy to point a finger in that direction, to place the blame for our current situation solely on their shoulders— but that's not the whole story. Last season, we talked about the racism of the suffragist movement, how white suffragists turned their backs on their Black peers after securing the vote for themselves, and how that decision has rippled across generations of feminism. I think Professor Treva Lindsay, who you may remember as a guest from last season, put it best. Without actually reckoning
0: with How, in particular, white women have contributed to, perpetuated, or been complicit with white supremacy and have not grappled with white privilege, you see that that shows up in fragile solidarities that are easily broken.
1: So today, we're going to do some reckoning. And we're going to explore how white women, specifically white feminists, actually played a role in preventing universal child care from becoming a reality. I'm Julie Kohler, and this is White Picket Fence. This season, we're exploring our country's caregiving crisis and the ideologies about race, gender, families, the economy, and yes, white women, that have blocked public investments in care and led us to a point where so many of us are cracking. By the 1960s, feminism had become an international force. Women were tired and angry and deeply frustrated.
2: Well, the main demand, of course, is equal equal rights. Equal rights to have a job, to have respect, not be viewed as a piece of meat.
1: Today, the National Women's Party lobbies for the 26th Amendment to guarantee women equal rights under the law. That amendment would make women people in a legal sense, for the first time. The second wave feminist movement of the 60s and 70s was multiracial. Many black women and other women of color were instrumental in creating an intersectional vision of women's liberation. But many feminist organizations of the era were led by middle-class white women. And consequently, their priorities often reflected their experiences and their interests. Remember the nuclear family? And how it didn't actually work very well for a lot of the people in it? Well, many of those dissatisfied former housewives played a prominent role in building these new feminist organizations. Their goals took center stage. They wanted jobs. They wanted financial independence. They wanted a right to pursue their ambitions and to assume other identities beyond wife and mother. While those desires are understandable, the emphasis these women placed on paid work had some blind spots. Here's Premelin Nadezin, professor at Barnard College, who we heard from a couple of episodes ago. I think it's
2: important to consider how their ability to take jobs outside the
1: home was dependent upon the labor of women of color. In other words, all of those homemaking responsibilities didn't just go away. And by focusing on a woman's right to enter professional spaces, a lot of feminists not only perpetuated a system in which women of color were confined to these low-paid sectors, they even insulted such work explicitly.
2: So Betty Friedan, wrote about how domestic work was boring and repetitious. And she actually wrote in her very famous book, The Feminine Mystique, and I quote her here, vacuuming the living room floor with or without makeup is not work that takes enough thought or energy to challenge any woman's full capacity. And so I think explicit in the women's movement of the 1960s, particularly for those people who were fighting for employment opportunities outside the home was a denigration of housework.
1: But domestic workers, not surprisingly, had a very different view. They saw it as important work. They saw it as work that needed to be
2: uplifted, that needed to be compensated properly.
1: These race and class divides within the feminist movement had real implications for policy, specifically our failure to enact universal childcare. To understand why, let's once again go back to 1971 and that piece of legislation we talked about a couple of episodes ago, the Comprehensive Child Development Act. In that episode, we focused on President Nixon, who vetoed the bill, Pat Buchanan, who encouraged him to do so, and the anti-feminist conservative grassroots movement that eventually took hold of the GOP. But that wasn't the whole story.
0: Most popular and academic accounts of the veto of the the Comprehensive Development Act blame the failure on this new powerful strand of pro-family Christian activism. Um, The story is actually more complicated than that because they couldn't have gotten away with dismantling it if
1: that ground wasn't also ceded. That's Anna danziger Halperin, a historian of childhood, gender, and social policy. There was a
0: very broad coalition um, of advocacy organizations that had been promoting the CDA, but coalitions are really messy, and the organizations within the coalition didn't always agree. Um, And so when I looked at the historical record of some of these organizations, what I found is that some of the advocates, some of the people that we would expect to be the strongest proponents for childcare policy were much more tepid.
1: In other words, some feminist organizations didn't fight as hard for this landmark bill as we might expect. To understand that and the role that race and class played in these advocacy fights, it's important to look at two feminist organizations that both, in theory, wanted child care in this country, the National Organization for Women and the National Welfare Rights Organization. The National Organization for Women, or NOW, was one of the most prominent feminist organizations at the time.
2: Welcome to the kind of woman power that sustained our grandmothers for 72 years in their struggle to get the right to vote. Welcome to the new wave of feminism. Welcome to each other. Welcome home.
1: It was also new, having been founded just five years earlier, in 1966. Now held a strong position when it came to caregiving, the need for what they called 24-hour child care, and tax deductions for childcare costs for higher-income families.
0: And they were very clear in their pamphlets and their documents and in their internal memos that it, this wasn't... Two separate demands, these were integral, and that you needed both sides of this coin um, for women to be able to be autonomous economic citizens and be able to pursue women's liberation.
1: Now was certainly not an all-white organization. Representative Shirley Chisholm and activist Polly Murray were both founding members. But white middle class women did comprise a great deal of Now's base and the volunteer leadership that played a big role in the organization's work. And when it came to the Comprehensive Child Development Act, NOW's leaders had mixed feelings.
0: So although the language of the CDA was for universal childcare that anyone would be able to access, and in practice, it had a sliding scale that meant that it would be targeted to those who were most in need. And that idea that this wasn't necessarily going to be available to all women made it so that some of the, the leaders were less excited about it, including the woman who was the, the task force coordinator for this issue. The, this task force coordinator ended up resigning with a letter that explicitly said that the reason why she had resigned was that the bill wasn't what we wanted as now, in her words. It was too much of she called it what the poverty lobby wanted. It was too narrowly going to be available in her mind to poorer women. And that, you know, really meant disproportionately non-white women. And the idea that this bill, you know, wasn't necessarily going to also help all of the women in now, especially the now's membership, which was predominantly middle class white women, it was it wasn't something that they were as excited about.
1: Now's position was in stark contrast with another organization of the time, the National Welfare Rights Organization. The National Welfare Rights Organization, or NWRO, was smaller. It grew from grassroots poverty organizations, unified by their belief that poor communities deserved respect and dignity. NWRO's members were largely black women, many of whom received welfare. And its leader, Johnny Tillman, saw racial and economic justice as core feminist issues. Tillman called for women's work to be recognized as real work. She called for women to be paid a living wage for child rearing and housekeeping. In 1972, she published an article for Ms. Magazine called, Welfare is a Woman's Issue. In it, she wrote, maybe we poor welfare women will really liberate women in this country. As far as I'm concerned, the ladies of NWRO are the frontline troops of women's freedom, both because we have so few illusions and because our issues are so important to all women, the right to a living wage for women's work, the right to life itself. Tillman's organization, however, also disagreed with parts of the bill.
0: NWRO was very worried about public policies that would force any welfare recipients to work when they didn't want to. And this is part of a a different push in policy at the time for welfare reform that was trying to reduce uh, the number of recipients receiving aid by forcing mothers into paid employment. They did support the idea of universal, high-quality childcare, although they didn't like the idea that those services could be targeted to poor families they worried that if services were targeted, it would lead to stigmatization, which is in fact what what has happened with most of our federal child care policies that are providing direct services. They become stigmatized because if they're not available to everybody, um, it's not seen as an entitlement and it's seen as a handout. So NWRO supported the idea of a universal Kind of approach to childcare that wouldn't differentiate between the needs of poor children and more wealthy children, that wouldn't differentiate between the needs of, of children by race?
1: So you had two organizations with vastly different membership bases, but a shared goal: universal child care. They actually shared some of the same concerns about targeting childcare assistance to poor women. But the NWRO was ultimately more supportive of the Comprehensive Child Development Act than now. It's possible to think about these tensions as just part of the game when it comes to advocacy. Even in the best of circumstances, coalitions can be messy and complicated, and even people who agree on goals often disagree on strategy. But the dynamics that we saw in 1971, and in particular, Now's decision to offer lukewarm support, reflected broader divisions in feminism. They showed whose interests were centered, what rights were prioritized, how equality was defined. In popular terms, we could talk about the divide as the difference between career feminism and care feminism. But those labels obscure race and class dynamics. What we saw in the childcare fight was the difference between white feminism and intersectional feminism. In other words, a feminism that fights against gender, race, and class-based oppression. That divide had real implications for childcare in this country. For much
0: of the 19th and 20th centuries, women's rights advocates had been split between, you know, those who were fighting for equal rights for women and those who were fighting for, for social rights. Advocating for policies that would address women as fundamentally different than men. And now is on more of that equal rights side. So the leaders of now prioritized issues like the Equal Rights Amendment over issues like childcare policy that really affect women as women ultimately because they were pushing for formal equality on an individual basis rather than pushing for these specific kinds of systemic uh, changes that would more equitably have distributed responsibility for caregiving. So things that these kinds of what we call liberal activists focused on were countering sex discrimination in employment and education and in the administration of public policies that buttressed that traditional male breadwinner model, um, things like pensions and uh, insurance benefits. And so now was really more focused on that, changing the law to be neutral about gender, um, rather than thinking about the ways that the law and that policy could support women's fundamentally different needs. And that's not to say that women are biologically, essentially, caregivers, but because women are disproportionately caregivers, when you change laws to be neutral, but you don't change anything to make it so that there is societal support for caregiving, the bottom kind of falls out, and caregiving unintentionally is devalued and denigrated. In
1: 1971... These feminist activists still had significant sway in the Republican Party, but by choosing not to go all in on the bill, they sent a message. This kind of childcare was not their top priority. This was not the hill they were willing to die on. So it's not surprising then that Nixon felt more accountable to the growing conservative base within the GOP who were more energized against childcare. Now's unwillingness to fight hard for the Child Development Act changed the political calculus. It was a factor in the act's ultimate defeat. But what's perhaps more important is what the organization chose to do, or not do, afterward. After the veto,
0: feminists, especially those in Now, often felt very discouraged by what they saw had happened on the Hill. And they decided they were going to take a step back in federal policy. Local chapters turned their intention instead on creating their own kinds of childcare centers and really feminists don't engage on the hill in that way forcefully for for decades. And instead those organizations are are really focusing on equal rights and challenging gender stereotypes um, and sex discrimination, which is extremely important, but it doesn't necessarily change the way that caregiving happens in daily life for so many families. So as... Feminists turn their attention to these issues of, you know, making sure that the, the law and social policy has this language of gender neutrality and gender equality, they really ceded this discourse of family values to conservatives. They're mostly focusing on women's freedom to compete in the marketplace as individuals um, rather than these issues uh, of caregiving. And that, you know, unintentionally, perhaps, denigrates the ways that we, we think about care.
1: The neoliberal paradigm that we talked about last episode even pervaded the women's rights movement and gave way to a kind of market-focused career feminism. Any serious attempt to get national child care evaporated. And sure, maybe it's because some feminist leaders got discouraged and thought they could better affect change at the local level. But it's also because care feminism took a back seat. The accomplishments of career feminism were more public, more newsworthy. And if we're honest, career feminism, white feminism, has remained pretty prominent. It resurfaced in the Lean In movement led by Sheryl Sandberg, or the recent celebration of girl boss culture. It's not that breaking barriers and cracking glass ceilings isn't significant, but the focus on individuals often overlooks deeper structural inequities. Still, it wouldn't be accurate to say that all feminism has ignored caregiving. The activism that Johnny Tillman created has grown considerably. Thanks to a whole new generation of organizers, domestic workers and care workers, are playing an increasingly central role to feminist advocacy. We'll talk more about that next time. The message for today is that we're still suffering the effects of those decisions 50 years ago, even, ironically, white middle class women. We may have careers, but many of us are still stuck with a second shift. It's a term coined by sociologist Arlie Hochschild to describe the unequal amount of housework and caregiving that women still do things at home just haven't changed as much. Men today do spend more time on housework and child care than they did a generation ago. But the gender gap is still there, regardless of employment status. According to Pew Research, mothers actually devoted more time to child care in 2011 than they had in 1965, even though many more worked outside the home. And according to data from two major time-use studies, Employed women spend more time on domestic work than even their non-employed male counterparts. These imbalances affect whose careers we see as more important. A recent study found that 70% of the top male earners in the U.S. have a spouse who doesn't work outside the home. To hold a high-powered job, it still helps to have a wife. Here's Premalina again.
2: I think a number of... Feminists, activists, and scholars, professional women have written so eloquently about the hardships of having a career, of working outside the home, and managing their household responsibilities. We have seen more and more visibility and attention onto domestic work. So over the past 30 years, feminist academics have written a lot about care work, have written a lot about the work-family balance, have written a lot about the ways in which women in particular, because women are still primarily responsible for the household, the ways in which women are torn between their professional responsibilities or their work responsibilities and their household responsibilities. And so I think there's there's more attention on it, but I think that too much of the way we talk about domestic work and the way we talk about care work is centered
1: on the needs of middle-class families. This focus on a specific class of families begs the question, are we making the same mistakes now that white feminists made 50 years ago? Here's Anna again.
0: We're expecting everyone to behave in the workplace as if there is someone at home taking care of all of that. And because those caregiving labors are all thought of as something that is not desirable, is not the kind of work that we value, it's not given much respect. It's seen as something that, you know, oh, any woman could do this. It's not thought of as something that takes skill or effort. What I hope we are seeing since the pandemic is all of that invisible, denigrated, devalued labor we're realizing is so necessary to everyday life. And we're recognizing the kinds of inequalities that have taken root.
1: In order for this moment to be different, here's our challenge. As workplaces sort of return to pre-pandemic norms, are we going back to the caregiving norms of before too? When that work was invisible? Or can we build something better? What would it look like to create a modern feminist movement that learns from our mistakes? Next week on the season finale of White Picket Fence.
2: Immigration, paid family medical leave, good paying jobs. Racism, these are some of the biggest challenges that we face in our society. And domestic workers really stand at the center of all of those things. Um, We live at the intersections in the domestic worker movement because we have no other choice.
1: White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and Taylor Williamson. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Shared Ascent Fund for their generous support for this season. We want to hear about your caregiving experiences, especially during the pandemic. Just call 212-655-5048 and leave us a voicemail with your story. We might just play it on the show. That's 212-655-5048.
0: on her turf we're back baby hi everybody i'm mj acosta ruiz i'm Lindsay zarniak leading up to the 2022 winter olympics beginning february 3rd we'll be talking to many amazing women in the sports world on the on her turf podcast presented by mbc sports plus we'll find out how these women have made an impact and motivated others to be the best versions of themselves so Check out this pod because we have a lot to talk about. Don't forget to follow or listen to On Her Turf on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform.